I figured a few years ago that we might want to build a chemical stain machine that would like basically take everything in the fume that the chemist would use and hook it up to a router, give it an IP address and control the data going in and out and build up a, a, a language that would ex- express all the unit operations of chemistry. And that's what I'm going to show you, basically, all of that in the next, say, 30 minutes. In this conversation, Lee Cronin discusses the Computer, the first programmable Turing complete chemical computer. Lee Cronin is a Fawcett Honorary Fellow in Chemical Computing and a professor at the University of Glasgow. He explains the Computer, a universally programmable device for synthesizing any molecule. Development is ongoing and a proof of concept has been achieved for several molecules. He estimates that with the right components, it's capable of performing 95% of all organic chemical synthesis. This conversation is part of the Molecular Machines Group, and you can find a written summary, so the slides and the video on our website. You can join the conversations by applying, by donating, and by becoming a member, in which case you can also join our in-person meetings. More at foresight.org. If you enjoy this podcast, please give us a good rating, tell your friends, or support us on Patreon. Thank you so much. What I'm going to do today is talk to you about um, how we might rethink how chemistry does uh, can be used to to make machines, actually. Because a lot of what the, the chemists tell you about the way they make molecules is they lie to you. They say that they're doing molecular programming and engineering. And actually, well, lying is probably a strong term. They are kind of talking about their artisan um, approaches to doing chemistry, which is not reproducible in general, relying upon their skills in laboratory. So what if we could think about it a bit differently and use the skills of the organic chemists? Absolutely. The molecular precision they are able to do, undoubtedly, is to somehow encode it in a different way. What would that give us if we can think more systematically about building technologies? So one of the things I want to purposely do in the next 14 minutes, I I will go slow on some things, fast on others, I won't apologise for that. I'll just say, keep up. Um, and I, well, I do apologise slightly, but I want to go on the slow bits for you guys to ask the deep questions on the bits that are just self-fulfilling. I won't go through all of them at the same speed, otherwise we won't have the same amount of time for discussion. And I think discussion and, uh, and you know is more important almost than the talk. So the talk is just an excuse for us to say, well, what is a cheering complete chemical um, uh, constructor? So the mission of the lab, um, we want to make life form and we want to digitize chemistry, we want to build chemical computers, and we want to look at the transition to information, all of those things. Just checking you can see the movies moving. Great, okay. Part of the idea here is to, they're all unified by one important thing, that we've got some degree of um, uh, kind of understanding what information is. The problem that we have in, in most of science, particularly physics, is we don't really know what we mean by information, because when we have information, we talk about information, we already have an encoder decoding system. We already have some kind of engineering that's already been done. Anyway, what I want to talk to you about is how to construct molecules and using a Turing complete um, approach to building molecules in reality. And this isn't about the same thing as running a comp- program on a digital computer. It's about a physical construction paradigm than is Turing complete. That means uh, something quite interesting when you're talking about constructing objects and producing languages which can, ex- which can express themselves um, to formalize the ability to make molecules um, on demand 
without human interaction using state machines digitally. This is important if we're going to go to molecular manufacturing, actually, in what we mean by molecular manufacturing, rather than some chemist in a lab pouring some stuff in a round bottom glass, maybe spilling some acid on the floor. Sure, they've got molecular control, as determined by the NMR, but it hasn't really, right? It's not molecular control. It's something else. Um, I'm making fun here. If you are organic chemist and you like making stuff, don't be offended. I also drop stuff on the floor and sit in my robots. The robots do it programmably, programmably, and it's quite funny. Um, so chemistry is, though, programmable from the point of view of abstractions from retrosynthetic analysis. It is possible to take a molecule and chop it up in your mind and think about how to make it in the laboratory. And it, that is a triumph of modern organic chemistry, to be able to take a complex object, break it into parts, work out what the reactive um, intermediates need to be, and then go and join them together and make that object um, in the laboratory. The problem, though, is there's no physical instantiation in a physical synthesis system of that outside a human being. That means every human will do it slightly differently. Every human will have a slightly different part, bit of ambiguity. It's not like writing a piece of code and executing that code on, on any um, qualified hardware. It doesn't work. So if we want to be able to make objects at the nanoscale and make them reliably, we need to understand how we can qualify the assembly of these objects in the architecture. So how do we get to universal chemistry? Well, I am a synthetic chemist. I like making stuff. So I realized we wanted to rather we could make any kind of, you know, we could choose any paradigm to try and make it complete, um, computationally complete. But people aren't going to adopt it unless you exploit 200 years of, of, of literature so you can bring that in. You enable the chemists on Earth today, the, the chemists at the, you know, at the hard end, that are doing the really hard designing and building and making and validating. We want to make it modular and reproducible. Wouldn't it be great if one of you guys, one of your students, could make something in your lab, a lab that maybe you could, um, it took you a couple of years to work out, and then you could then send the code to me and I could make it in my lab in one day? That would be an amazing accomplishment. Sadly, in chemistry, that's not the case. Um, and one of the things that we need to be able to do if chemistry is going to make a contribution to um, new technologies is to make that the case. So I realized a few years ago the idea is we have to automate the round bottom flask. Now, the round bottom flask is really um, the most essential component, if you like, like the read or write head in the Turing machine. Because the, 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 the uh, round bottom flask you should view as a process state. So you can pour stuff into the round bottom flask. Sure, chemistry itself, the actual reactions are stochastic. Don't worry about that for the moment. That's a very good argument we can have. But the act of putting something into a flask and doing, changing the state of that flask, uh, temperature, pressure, whatever, at a catalyst, is really like a state machine. And you can then start, as a function of time, to do transformations. So I figured a few years ago that we might want to build a chemical state machine that would like basically take everything in the fume that the chemist would use and hook it up to a router, give it an IP address, and control the data going in and out and build up a, a, a language that would exp express all the unit operations of chemistry. And that's what I'm going to show you, basically, all of that in the next, say, 30 minutes. And just learn a whole bunch of examples. So, okay, so let's start with the chemical state machine. So the idea of a chemical synthesis state machine is really simple. Right now in the laboratory, the way that you do uh, preparation is you write a procedure. 
you know, you interpret that procedure. So I could write down a procedure, give it to my grad student. And my grad students are all smarter than me, without exception, okay? And they'll interpret my procedure and say, Lee doesn't know what he's talking about. I'll interpret that and do that a bit differently. I'll do that a bit differently. I'll do that a bit differently. And before you know it, each really smart grad student has got their own recipe based on my recipe. They do the experiment, get the result, and update, adapt and improve. But you don't really know what tacit knowledge hasn't been captured, okay? There is ambiguities in that process. Whereas if you digitize it, you have a code, a graph, you compile from that code to your graph, you get a result, adapt and improve, and you can have a procedure that create a version control system, and you basically would treat pro, uh, the chemistry synthesis like pro writing piece of code, and you would version that code and run it. Okay, that's the dream. This is not new. Um, um, there are lots of single class computing machines out there, um, which mirror what's going on in chemistry right now, like a DNA synthesizer, peptide synthesizer, carbohydrate synthesizer. But these are not universal. These are just almost like finite machines that can make one type of bond, okay? Which is great. It shows that it is possible to use a digital code to instantiate a program that would make, you know, in fact, if it wasn't for um, RNA synthesis, we probably wouldn't be, hopefully, fingers crossed or whatever it is, getting out of this awful pandemic um, right now. Um, so, you know, that's a, real, that's a real marvel of being able to do that kind of bio-nanotechnology, actually. So what, why is it universal? What are we trying to make? Well, we're trying to make a, a chemical synthesis state machine. And what this does is a chemical synthesis state machine. You put in the code, let's say, to make the, the, the kind of uh, um, the abstract code to run uh, your reaction. It would have a graph of the resources required to instantiate the reaction. So it would have some understanding of what reflux would look like. So basically heating up something, allowing evaporation and then condensation, adding something drop-wise, forming a solid. All these unit operations, which a chemical engineer would think about at the macro scale and like maybe in a, in a big pilot plant, are brought to the fume hood, to the normal chemistry fume hood. And then you then have a state machine, which is then executed as a function of the input and output with a scheduler. And you have an interface with the actual physical world. And really... The abstraction of the chemical assembly really allows us to think about a state machine that can make any molecule material. This is where the kind of analogy, it was just an analogy to start with a Turing machine and then became much more concrete. So what is a Turing machine? A Turing machine is a, a, um, a theoretical entity that can basically simulate itself. Okay. Now, if there are any computer scientists here that want to do it more formally, you can think about what you would need for recursive enumeration and unbounded memory. But basically, if uh, a Turing machine should be able to run any digital program, put very crudely. So now let's do the same analogy. Let's imagine a chemical reaction kit in a fume hood that could do any reaction and make any molecule. Is that possible? Well, re reactions aren't that hard. All you do is you throw the stuff together or you mix the stuff together in the flasks. So you start the reaction. You would then work up the reaction at the end. You would isolate and purify. Four steps, four abstractions, go in a loop, make anything. What is hard, of course, is the knowledge to choose what solvents, what workup, what catalyst, when is the reaction finished, where, how to minimize impurities. There's lots of magic or tacit knowledge, I would rather call it magic, that is not tracked um, or captured unambiguously. But our dream is to go for a thing uh, called computation. And computation is the process of running a chemical code on any compatible hardware 
and getting the same result. What is computation? Computation is like taking a code, run it on some hardware, get the same result on any hardware with little error. That's the dream. So that's what we're going to take, I'm going to take you through in the next uh, 25 minutes. So to do this, we basically built a, a language, and I'm going to describe how this works um, over the next uh, wee while. And this, this language looks very simple. It's just, uh, it's just a, it's a markup language, actually, but it's so much more than markup language because now we've made it fully able to express itself. It's absolutely true and complete. And that, that, that has some real power that, is, that I will explain as it becomes physically instantiated. So it's not true and complete running a simulation of itself. It's true and complete with respect to running the computation. That is running those reactions in your reactor, in your fugitive for real, not a simulation. Okay? And so, but first of all, let's go back to the beginning where my, I went in my group and said, right, I'm bored of no one being able to reproduce each other's work. Let's make some robots. So everyone went, okay, well, actually, that's not the way it happened. I went in the lab and said, I'm bored of you not following my instructions. Here is the code. Here is what you do, right? It's a bit like, uh, you know, um, you must obey these rules. I won't make any jokes about mask wearing and the pandemic and aliens and all the conspiracy we're facing with right now. But suffice us to say, when you ask any intelligent and free-minded person to follow your rules, they probably tell you to go away. So I thought that was a fail. They weren't going to buy my robot rules. So I went to the land next day and said, shall we build some cool robots that would, give, that would you know, save you time and labor and take all the drudgery out? They went, that's better. We'll talk to you now. So we designed a whole bunch of robots, and obviously baked into those robots was the programming language I built. So I, I, my group went and built these uh, kind of this open source stuff at the beginning, um, and, and pumps and valves that we built ourselves. The reason why we built our own microcontrollers and I designed electronics wasn't because I didn't have enough money or I was too much of a geek, although I don't have enough money and I am a geek, but was because I wanted to control the data. I didn't want any of anyone bullshitting me about my data going into my object and vendor locking it, okay? Uh, I don't like data bullshit. And there's a lot of it out there. In the early uh, 2000s, where people were trying to sell hardware and make it really expensive and inaccessible, um, we had to try and eliminate that. Anyway, we a few years went by, and we basically built our first computer. Um, I, hopefully you can see this. This is just the assembly of the robot in the lab. It's, it looks very familiar to a bench chemist, right? Rotary evaporator, some glassware. There's some funny pumps and valves in the backbone. Here's the first, it's the first generation. The thing cleans itself at the beginning. It's a self-cleaning robot, which I thought was quite good. Now you might see now the reagents are being mixed as the reaction has started in the round bottom flask. Um, and the reaction has ended. Now it's doing a workup, the separator with the liquid-liquid extraction over here. Then after this, this extraction, you've got this auto-evaporate to basically produce your crude material. Then you then um, at the material you need to dissolve um, up um, your crude, and then you move it to the crystallizer to um, um, produce uh, the final material in this case. And I should say at this point, this is a different lecture. The reason I just, the, the, the main reason for designing the computer using this language, it actually uses a lambda calculus. Um, is actually because I wanted to brute force the origin of life. Originally, all this technology was built to brute force the origin of life. Look for molecular complexity, try and find the first replicators, screen in chemical space. But when I went to the funders and said, hey, guys, give me $10 million because I'm going to search for the origin of life, they said, 
are you kidding us? No, you don't know any chemistry. You're this random guy who thinks they can play with some robotics. What do you want to hear? Says, hey, guys, do you want to give me some money to make drugs? And they went, that's better. And then that's why I built the technology on the drug side. And then obviously in my lab, I'm using it to basically um, be clueless, as one of the people watching would say, uh, um, be clueless and explore chemical space. But anyway, I've built quite a lot of modules um, for um, the computer. I found a chemical modules, redox modules, um, small modules that we're going to um, chromatography modules. This little module here, Barista Bot, is able to make the, the Pfizer vaccine all in one little robot. Okay. Um, and it's about this big, and you don't need a few of those. Um, this paper this has just been finished right now. Um, this is our inner atmosphere computer for doing um, reactive and radioactive chemistry. Um, so there's lots of kind of, um, you know, challenging air sensitive um, and, and potentially very dangerous stuff you wouldn't want a human being there. By having them separate, maybe you can control it by computer. The thing blows up. It's not such a catastrophe for someone standing next to it. It's not an excuse to blow it up, but it just gives you another layer of protection. And of course, when we were locked down, um, it was possible to socially distance because we just simply went into the laboratory, set up the, set up the robots, um, social distance, went away, did the chemistry from home, went back in, did the workup. So it was quite, um, I wouldn't say it was, we, we designed the pandemic for our robots because <laughs> who, who wants to have to be sat at home all the time, but it was the, a little silver lining. So the KMPU system improves inversions, and when we wanted to publish the first paper, um, I was fairly shameless and said, look, don't worry too much about the programming language. We just need to, we just need to publish a paper that shows we can make molecules what cells? Well, set cells. So we made Viagra. Um, and then we made a couple of drugs. We made nitron with thinamide. And we made them on scales that a human being would, would make typically useful scales, um, gram scale. And uh, we were able to make them exactly the same way. Um, and um, it worked pretty nicely. But the key thing, one robot, three different drugs, same abstractions. We just had to reprogram. If you think about it, now the state machine there, the, the, you have the reactor, the separator, the evaporator, and the crystallizer all working together as a state machine. So you have your reagents and your input buffer. They go in. They are transformed. Then when, the, when you purify, you take your pure material out from step one, put it in a holding bay, then start reaction two, take the reagent you made, take the product from your previous reaction, in the next reaction and go forward in loops. So my team were very happy about this. Um, they were pretty excited about um, using it, but there was one downside, that they didn't really appreciate the programming language to start with because it looked like a lot of coding. So and quite, quite um, 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 understandably, my team said, well, we love organic chemistry. We love learning to, to use our skills correctly. And all you've done is you've forced us now to go from doing chemistry in the lab that we love by hand to sitting in front of a computer and typing in code and, the, and it not always working. And what I tried to do when we were going through this process is say, well, look, what we're trying to do is not just um, make you coders, but we want to understand the land, the hierarchy of abstractions in chemistry. And really for this, obviously, Noam Chomsky and a few other people have really re-understood, well, made, enabled us to understand the relationship between uh, automata and, and grammars in the world. And we know that chemistry is a, is a language, and we know that it also can be treated like an automata. So what we wanted to do 
is to make a a a a, a, um, a kind of level four, if you like, uh, um, Turing machine qualified chemical programming language that would construct new molecules. So what we did is we realized that chemists have gone from the stone tablet in alchemy to calligraphy. So we all know we all use the same alphabet. But the problem is we all don't use typewriters. What I mean by that is we don't, we don't, um, when you write down your, your procedure, you don't capture all the information I said earlier. Um, and that digitization doesn't occur. So that means there's always information lost and, you, the, and that leaves the chemist guessing when they read the procedure. Okay, it leaves lots of heartache because that information, some of that information could be because you've got a trainee who doesn't know um, the, the, how to set up that particular type of reaction. It could be that the laboratory has a different culture to another lab, so they dry the solvents in a different way or they use different types of glass in their round bottle flasks or they add A to B rather than B to A. When they write down, add A to B, right? They might mean that when you write that down, they mean, oh, add B to A. Depends culturally on whether you, where you read. How, do you read left or right? How do you interpret that information? Okay. How do you nest everything in the loop? So we wanted to make a hello world for chemistry. So this is hello world in a punch card. This is hello world in assembly. I don't know if anyone here is, I guess, some people, Creole is probably written in assembly. Um, and uh, here's hello world in Python. And so... You know, hello world of Python is pretty easy, right? So what we want to be able to do is do chemistry at that very high level where we can express what we want and it gets compiled down to the hardware. In fact, we don't care what the hardware is. The system just knows and it makes it work. I want hello world on my screen, make it happen. I don't care how. That's the type of thing I wanted with the chemistry. To do that, then, we had to make a programming approach to, re to make any molecule. We had to have a reader, a chemical processor, a virtual machine, and a way to compile it with a graph. And I won't give too much here because I want to stop in 15 minutes for questions. I'll give you the general idea. And it's and I'm very happy to dig in, very happy to give you links to papers, very happy to give you links to code. So there's I'm not hiding anything. It's just a time thing. And and actually I could be a common nerd and tell you that whole all works, but you may not care. So what we do know though is let me tell you how the programming actually basically works. It works on actions. Now the chemist is like a cook. They would chop stuff up. They would add stuff. They would heat stuff. They would dry stuff. They would irradiate. So these are the kind of operations at the top level you want to do, okay? And because you have these universal actions, they are interpretable um, by the, any robot. And then if we write it in the right way, it's human and machine le readable, and then you can verify uh, how it works because you can run it on any robot. We determine just by having, say, um, um, just if you had uh, the fluid handling, the heat of the chiller, filtration, phase separation, evaporation, column chromatography, only with these um, unit operations available, you could do 95% of chemistry. Well, actually, it's 60% 60, 60 strictly because actually low temperature chemistry required a bit more. And we now have low temperature that takes you a bit higher and solid handling takes you a bit higher and vacuum distillation takes you all the way to 95%. Okay. So, and these are just extra costs and extra um, engineering difficulties, I would say. And that's not bad. 60% for a robot that costs less than $50,000, right? It's cheaper than the peptide synthesizer, which is kind of hilarious. Um, this is, we in the beginning, we use natural language processing to help us populate the fields for our programming language, but it is not a machine learning programming language. It is a formal language 
okay, that has a formal syntax and a set of rules that are uh, expressible within that language. It's like I say, it's written like a lambda calculus. So there's the KDL gets goes to the compiler, which I like, rather the compiler that takes the code, takes the graph, compiles it together, and makes it work. I'll give you some of the features. It's modularizable, composable transformations. There are explicit dependencies. You have the ability to express recursion. In, 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 so a bit like tree-like and convergent experiments, keeping, I needed this recursion for my origin of life, why combinate ideas? But then I realized it's really good for iterative chemistry, cross-coupling chemistry, peptide synthesis, RNA synthesis, DNA synthesis. All these things fit into this paradigm very nicely. There's a formalism that we are we describe everything as, as transformations, a set of inputs that goes to results, and you have a sequence of instructions that we call deviation, the derivations. Okay, and it's given here how these derivations work, and we're using an op de operational um, semantics, uh, sorry, these denotational semantics to label things, um, as you can see here. But this is just if you like formal methods, and you want to formally check that your computer is going to do what you want. Let me just show you it working, right? So let's just say you're a chemist and you say, I don't care about this formal stuff. Here is my, here is a general organic synthesis. Here's my preparation. Can I take literature, convert it to programming language? And this is just a little app we built that basically the chemist would go in, take, take the, the procedure that was written in the literature, correct it like you can in an idle, and then um, basically um, check everything works. Then we would load in a graph of our robot. First of all, we give it a project title. Generate the graph. This is just a picture of your robot. Okay, check the robot. Yes, the picture of your robot is right. Then you take your code, the graph, check it compiles so that the, the resources are enough. You've got enough valves, enough pumps, things like that. Simulate it, check that it works then you're away, you can run it. This is how easy it is now to take any molecule in the literature. If the literature is not BS, and the sad thing is most of the literature is BS. We're not BS, incomplete. That's the polite way to put it, incomplete. But the good news is we know how to make it complete. And the, also the even better news is that although I'm saying some of the literature is BS or incomplete, it's not that hard to make a robot that can search around the parameters and guess what was wrong and fix it. Because most people are not meaning to defraud each other. It's just loss of knowledge. So what we have to do is go and rebuild the chemical literature, which is a cool, cool thing. Okay, so what we did to prove this worked for lots of different molecules, we did um, cross-coupling reactions. Um, we made peptides. Um, we've made the azarenes, which are really unstable molecules. In fact, um, during lockdown, we started a project called Chemify 100, where we took the 100 top molecules that everyone wanted to digitize. And sorry, it wasn't methamphetamine or various THCs. They were just like molecules that chemists would, well, actually, I don't know if I'm sorry, no, I am. Uh, uh, um, uh, molecules that chemists need um, and um, are really important kind of nodes in a synthetic space. And uh, we took most of the chem organic chemist toolbox toolbox to digitize it. So from cross-couplings, deprotections, reductions, oxidations, ring closures, um, we did it. And all these molecules you can see on the screen now were done in our ChemPU, our chemical processing unit, done for real and purified automatically from the literature. So we've, we've done about 50, 
Uh, there's about another 180 million to go. So, you know, but you've got to start somewhere. And just about, and the reason why hopefully you guys are kind of uh, sympathetic is you can probably remember or imagine what it was like when the first transistors were being built and Moore's Law had to kick in. We're at a similar kind of idea here. If we can get the reliability, then why not just make all the molecules in literature, formalize the code, and then we have access to chemical space in a way we never dreamt of before. Okay, now I want to go on for the last 10, nine minutes to platforms and algorithms. So I'm going to slow down a little bit. I'm just going to show you what it can do. So I want to talk about discovery, nanomaterials. I've also got a computer that's making a molecular machine that makes a molecular machine. So think about it. You've got a state machine at the macro scale that basically is going to design a molecular machine at the nano scale that has a state that then can then act on itself to make another nano machine. And the outcome of that nano machine controls the macroscopic computer to do a different reaction. So we call this downward causation. So is it cool? You start at the top, human being turns it on, gets it to make a molecular machine. That molecular machine makes another molecular machine, all stochastic. We've added some decision-making algorithm with a sensor, UV maybe, and then the outcome of that reprograms the macroscopic machine to make a different type of molecular machine. I don't know why that would be useful, but it seemed really cool to make it about, you know, how do we go from a macroscopic machine to a molecular machine without human interaction? And can we then think of ways of, you know, uh, tailoring the way we search chemical space with that approach? But let's start simple, and let's show you some some platforms were built in the lab and some algorithms. So the first one I'm really cool, really, really proud of is we made a robot to basically search nanomaterial uh, discovery space using a physics engine that would simulate the formation of nanomaterials uh, and, um, and then look at how the crystal faces would def deform and then simulate the plasma, okay? And then what we do is the idea would be, could we have a robot where we mix stuff together, gold precursor, capping ligand, reducing agent, and could we then look at the plasma that we simulate and look for the, sorry, simulate the plasma we want, look for that, and then and then try and make the, the, uh, the nanoparticle or the facet material in the machine. And the way we do it, like we start with the seed, have an, have an ideal path where we go down this tree here. Each of these levels um, um, reflects different operations in the robot. And the way we do it is we have a, the virtual space that we then explore, okay, um, there's a fitness function linked to the UV data, and there's a chemical space and we sample it. And, of course, we will then get TEMs at the end just to check we're not completely off track. Um, and we go around and make these materials. This is what the robot looks like. So it's just a little wheel here with all the sample wires, the fencing. If you look, and this is kind of the, um, um, the platform here, this platform is actually open source. Um, I released it about a year ago. So if you're fancy making one, it's like like literally a couple hundred dollars and a bit of 3D printing. Um, and here are all the input pumps. The spectroscopy is on the left-hand side here, the reagents from here. And the way it works is basically you have a dispensing pH control and you basically have a UV-vis characterization. And you also have a point where you actually obviously wash the reactors and reactions out and start again and keep going around the loop. So you endlessly go around the loop till you find the perfect plasma, and then when you found the closest plasma, you say stop there, and then that is the, the stuff you keep for later, and you then basically crystallize that um, or precipitate that, and then you you look at the um, the electron microcross. 
this is a kind of uh, uh, the space of UVs. This is how we search in our class index space, which is a glorified GA. Um, the the map elites uh, and the way we fit them from a random to our our you know our high fitness um, is shown here, and then you've got this kind of this um, 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 set of UV vis here and some updates. But let's just show you the results. This is what we get. These are these are not selected micrographs. It's one of my pet peeves in uh, uh, nanoscience moments that people just basically select their micrographs. Okay, you may not cut and paste them in Photoshop, but you just keep doing the experiment until you um, get the ones you want, which I think is kind of uh, you know kind of kind of annoying. But so these are representative of the batches, the little codes. I'm going to show you the kind of where they come out of, out of space. These are all entirely reproducible. If you were to build a robot or have a very simple, well, not even our robot, but another robot that would use a KDL, you could reproduce this very easily. And we're trying to facet them. And you can see at the bottom of the row here where we've got these different pointy bits. That is harder because you control it basically, but we're getting there. So that's pretty exciting. Oops, I went right to the end there. Then I did that, but I'll it back. So um, we also made the system to look at energy materials. Um, um, this is a, using the wheel now to make supercapacitors to then put them onto a, a thin film to look at metal oxide space. So we integrate the discovery and the assay. That's really important in the closed loop. So you're not, the, the um, human isn't having to put in information. So you really have a hard link between the discovery and the unit operations and the device. And there, and we do electrochemistry, and we've been making some super caps. Many years ago, we made an evolutionary engine, and the idea was to make to again to look at the um, the uh, kind of uh, cell first origin of life. And the idea is that we have a robot that would look for um, 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 colloid formation and complex cell formation with very simple components. And we proved that not only we could produce these things in the lab um, using fairly good uh, um, random slotting points, we could get these things to evolve and have some fitness, um, and we could do quite complex things with them. So these are the fitness landscapes. But sorry for skipping that. I want to get to the uh, conclusion of the talk. Um, we've also got some design. I go back to my, my roots as an inorganic nanochemist. I love doing nano. Um, design with clusters and but the, the real I suppose reality is you're a crystal farmer so you set up hundreds if not thousands of crystallization that look for crystals and then when you're lucky you get a nice crystal structure this is a, a lift of 120 CO3 uh, elliptical nano wheel um, and you can see it's three nanometers by um, uh, 1.7 nanometers um, and um, I had some fun using an out my student was competing with a robot and basically, the student got beaten by the robot. And I published this paper called Humans v. Robots, and the referees went apeshit. It was hilarious. Now, was the student inferior to the robot? No. What the robot did here was kind of cheating. The robot's workflow was, um, I'm going to pick a pH at random. So for me, every pH is the same. I have to go through the same procedure. Wash out my sample vial. Add my acid, add my face, check the pH is what I want, then do the reaction. When the student did it, the student's like, I'll just put my sample arms in a row and modify the pH and go up, increment by increment in dilution, because it's less unit operations. So the student minimized the unit operations where the robot did the same number. 
So actually, the reason why the, the robot was able to explore a great crystallization space is just because of the fact that the student was not random. So you want student, your students to be random where possible, but, but auditable. Auditable random is the answer to everything. <laughs> but anyway, that was a cool thing. Um, we're also using uh, closed-loop reactivity, um, doing organic chemistry with no targets in mind, just mixing stuff randomly in the lab which is very scary to the safety officer. So, of course, we don't do it randomly. We tell the safety officer, but we don't tell the student, so we don't have any bias, right? Bias is everywhere, including in organic chemistry. So if we remove bias, we remove the knowledge of what we're, make, uh, what we're using, we can look for new reactivity. This is causing great fun with my organic colleagues because they think I'm some kind of heretic, but it doesn't matter. And these are the robots we're building to search chemical space, and it's good fun because... We're going to use the same discovery systems that use neural networks for looking at re- re- reactivity to basically also make drug discovery robots, um, which we've got going on the lab right now to make inhibitors for various uh, kinases, which I'm going to skip over here just because. But I'll show you this part because I think it's quite good fun. So one of the things we're going to do in the computer right now is basically coming up with a – this is very Dave Lee, um, John Marie Lane, um, Savage-type chemistry. Um, and Stoddard, of course, I shouldn't leave Fraser out, um, where the idea is we're going to try and take a series of molecularly uh, interconnected um, molecules um, and assemble library of these catalysts to make them switchable in the computer. So the computer would do the reactions, but it wouldn't just be doing organic covalent chemistry, but it'd be doing um, mechanical bond chemistry, if I use the term correctly. So I know Fraser likes the term being used precisely. The idea is then to have a chemical state machine that makes a molecular machine and we have a feedback loop, and that's what we're doing at the moment. So if if I haven't insulted you all and you want me back one day, I can update you on that in maybe a year or so. Um, okay, I'm one minute over. I just want to stop here by saying, you know, um, all these robots you've seen use the same programming language, the same approach. So they sh- the language should work on any qualified robot, not just the things we built. And that's very important. That abstraction has to work properly. And one of the things I want to kind of suggest is that we should go for a vision of computation that allows us to make molecules and complex materials that are universal with respect to the platform, be it you do it by hand, if you're a human, or in a chemistry robot, or one of my robots or some other robot you've got. It's task universal in terms of looking for synthesis optimization and discovery. And there's a chemical universality because we're able to use blueprints for making specific um, um, chemistries. And as I said before, computation is the process of running our chemical code reliably on any compatible hardware. This is compared to computation, which I think I've explained. I'm going to stop right there. Um, sadly, my team could not get together for the group photo last November, so we did a lockdown selfie instead, and here we all are. They're absolutely amazing bunch of people. It's a pleasure to work with them. Um, they've obviously had a very stressful year being locked down, but I think that, um, that they've survived really well and helped keep me sane. And I'd like to also fund, thank funders, uh, particularly in the UK, PSRC, ERC, DARPA, and all these other people here. But last but not least, I'd like to thank you for attention, and I'm really looking forward to uh, answering questions and having a discussion. Thank you. Well, thanks very much, Lee. That was fascinating. Um... So there's a, there are a few, I wouldn't call them necessarily questions in the chat. Some of them are very, very long sort of statements. There are a few questions in there. They are quite long, though, if you want to in, engage with a few of those. And then yeah, to remind people, as this is off the record, if you do want to unmute yourselves to have a the discussion, that's also fine.
So to we've referred to um, being able to take a property of a material that you might want to make and then you predict almost from first principles using your machine. So what do you envisage if, if you said that was a long-term goal? One of the things that this group is interested in is identifying, even at a very coarse grain level, what, say, a 5, 15, and 30-year goal for this group or research in a specific area would be. I don't know if you can offer some comment on that. Yes. I apologise, it's a slightly nebulous question. No, no, no. In five years, or even now, this year, we have got a system whereby we have a problem. So let's say we want to make an design inhibitor. We then um, produce, using a, um, a surrogate model, candidates for that. But we screen those candidates for what we can make already in our machine. So we only consider those molecules a fit for purpose. That seems bad. But then when you think about the fraction of the universe that is really big in chemical space, you actually realize if you allow the system to go around, go, well, intelligent inverse in line, no limitations, and you give it some limitations, the performance that you theoretically generate is really, really high. So it's kind of cool because it's a bit like turning up in London with, uh, say, I'm going to drive around London. I need to go from A to B. What roads are open? And you're only allowed to use those roads. Or I've just turned up in Tokyo. I'm, those roads don't exist yet. I'm just going to make them. You know, and so I think that so in five years, we will be routinely just rerouting. Within 10 years, we'll be inventing new reactions and using our knowledge base to go back to basically say, okay, I, I could take a route that maybe takes me 20 steps, but I could, if I just have this one magic bond I can make here, the thing that's going to happen, I make a prediction, that may be exciting for this group, is that right now chemists are thinking about general reaction of small molecules. When the molecules get bigger and bigger and bigger, there's no such thing as a methodology. The molecule, the bond you make will be locked in the molecule you're interested in. You will have to optimize for that particular bond. That is really exciting and interesting. And I think if we can start to crack that nut in the next, say, decade, okay, the dream of making um, highly complex molecules that are highly functional um, in ways that this group is interested in will will become not quite routine, but the route to routine will be there. Hey, that's not, not, to, not to be annoying, Lee. Did I just hear you say bond? Yes. Cool. <laughs> I, I don't mind using metaphysics to explain, you know, my... Uh, I was like, was referring to the fact on Twitter I'm winding people up because chemists don't know what bonds are. Because I'll tell you a little secret. In my robot, um, if you put in reagents and you use Bayesian chemist, Bayesian mathematics, you can get some reactivity profile. But hey, if you start to put in solvents that can hydrogen bond, that are not formal bonds, they change the mathematics in such a way, if you just treated them like bonds, you get better answers out. So when I was said on Twitter, bonds don't exist, what I'm saying is our classification of the energy level bonds is misguided. Why don't we just do things random, Bayesianly, and then just work out if a molecule sticks together? Because a bond on Jupiter may be stable, more stable than a bond, say, on Earth, because of you know the fact that the zillion pascals that are there. But anyway, uh, um, you know where I'm coming from. I, yeah, I take cool. it in the play, playful uh, way you put, 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 the, put the question. So, are there, are there any other questions that people want to ask? I see Alison's put a, a poll out. 
um, yes. for people to comment on how to like to, the direction of the group to go. I'm sorry, I cut someone off. There, so. I got a, I got, I have a question. Is, is anyone, uh, any one of these labs that currently has a computer um, planning on offering cloud computing? Um, uh, yes. Uh, my, I'm starting a company called Chemify. And one of the things that Chemify will do in the end is to, to, to basically have a, um, a, a kind of Amazon for chemistry, but it's ways away because there's regulatory issues. But the, ni- the nice thing is, let's say, I think it was Tim, right? You asked the question. Let's yeah. just say that, you know, let's say your, your secret name is Heisenberg. I'm like, oh my gosh, it's Tim just going to start making jobs to the, you know, or actually you're working in a, you know, FDA regulated company and you need to make compound X pretty urgently. And what you need is legitimate within the regime, the, the legal, I was going to say regime is the wrong word. You know what I mean? The legal jurisdiction in which you live, there's a really interesting encryption technique, which is why having a true and complete language is what you can do is you can submit the code to the robot in the warehouse and it's encrypted. It's even encrypted in the point of execution. And the robot doesn't know what it's executing. The person doesn't know what it's executing. It's tagged, put out, and you then, and you get the usage rights. So according to your certificate, you know, whether you have the right to fly that robot at that level, you can make OPX, THCs, whatever you want. And then you can give people rights to do that. And then so there'll be a lot of cloud computing available and we'll be able to not just regulate it from a safety point of view, which is vital, but also understand um, the type of molecules that people are using in R and D environments and, and these uh, supply chains, and I think so that, pretty- like homomorphic encryption or what are you thinking? Homomorphic. homomorphic encryption. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Uh, how how many years is that away? Because we we're pretty those factors in our biotech group of you know how you could use. I've, I've already done it. Um, theoretically, well, not theoretically, we've done one example, um, but obviously it has to be qualified. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm more of a mathematician than I am a chemist. So um, when I was locked down, I played around with my my own robot at home. Uh, to, to, I mean, I wasn't making uh, compounds; I was actually changing pH because I didn't think it was a, you know, I, my my lab, my home lab is only kind of certified for doing aqueous chemistry, you know playing with lemon juice but nevertheless um playing with these four more ideas is pretty important it's really important that we get people not to be scared of the technology we have an open debate about where how we want that technology to be used right because i can imagine a time in a you know say 50 years from now let's say 75 years from now where you've got continuous gene sequencing so people and you can you can basically detect people's illnesses as they're just starting in fact a decade ahead and you say, oh, I've detected this problem. We're going to make the drug you need. The drug gets designed on site, gets synthesized. You get given the drug. You don't even know anything about it. It should be a very, very simple um, future if you can digitize chemistry and biology, of course. That's hell of a claim. And we don't know what's going to happen because we, can't, we don't even understand the genome. So... Yeah, there's some really exciting literature on that um, from Open Mind, the group at Oxford. But that's a conversation for another day. But yeah, very exciting. Yeah, okay, so Alex has given me is that some NFT from Chemical Structures. That's brilliant, Alex. Can you can you can you send me some for free? Just uh, just 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 uh, just to get going. Yeah, no, mate. I don't think I'm doing that. Oh, are you sure? <laughs> <laughs> 
if you are interested, watch the page for the ChemCoin. It is going to come, but I need to figure it out properly because in the first place, really what I want to do is imagine the following scenario. You go to, you want to make a molecule simply, really urgently. You have two options. And there's a really nice paper in Nature published by your, your, you know, your, your, one of your favorite chemists ever who is reliable and brilliant. And you can follow it, but the, the, it's going to take one month to follow the, 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 the procedure. Or you can just get the code um, from Chemify or from a database, and you can see the code has been validated by a number of people, like, you know, Facebook um, likes or whatever, where people gone through and mined that code and versioned it. So then do you, let's say, spend $1,000, um, I don't know, leasing a computer or going to a chem cloud to make it, or do you waste a month of someone's time or potentially two months to make the molecule? Well, this is the this is the problem I had during my PhD is that I spent half my time, you know, drawing nice molecules, nice molecular machines, all these melorganic frameworks that had protexanes and all this crazy stuff. But I would always joke that ninety percent of my PhD was just in the lab doing organic chemistry, which I'm not that good at. So if my project was going badly, I'm an organic chemist. If it was going well, I was an inorganic chemist. And if it was going really well, I was a materials chemist. <laughs> so if I could skip that 90% of the work that I actually did that I didn't want to do, I'm all for it. Yeah, I'm sad I didn't put in our mothbot. So we have actually have got a mothbot and we use image recognition to basically um, index the crystal faces and then put it on diffractometer. So we have this high throughput thing also looking at polymorphs. But that's another talk. But, um, um, but anyway, well, good to hear that. <laughs> It's hard doing synthetic chemistry. What's the plan? I have something something really mundane to ask, which is um, since you're reusing the same, I think, as I understand it, you keep reusing the same um, reactor apparatuses and crystallizers and things that you have some kind of like, tell me a little about the cleaning step. So, yeah, there's an there's a automatic cleaning routine that happens all the time in the system. And not only that, within the computer system, we've got one where we have a, not a high throughput, but we have six reactions going at once. And what you can do is we use scheduling software, and we're able to do reactions at different concentrations for optimization. So what it does is it basically says, I'm going to start you first, one hour, T equals zero. Then one hour later, I'll start the next reaction because the extraction, say, takes one hour, and you have them out of sync. sync you have them in sync. And then you can basically do the reaction like landing planes at airport one after the other. So to do that, we had to validate a cleaning procedure. And the cleaning procedure we're finding, as long as you basically aspirate solvent through the backbone um, regularly after you've done your, um, your unit operation, you very rarely have a problem unless you have a precipitate or you have a particularly sticky material or something like that. So we've been playing with that. Unfortunately, I wanted my computer being like a normal silicon computer. It's like, you don't have to wash out the electrons, right? It's all, you know, it's fine. <laughs> but sadly, um, but there is a nuclear button, quite literally, where if you really have to do an acid wash, you push the button and it will acid wash. And that's, uh, but that's really like the nuclear option. And the other thing I've been playing with is double rooted. Like I like the idea of having a radio array. So a radio array is a redundant array of independent uh, 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 disks. Well, I have a rare array, a run- redundant array of independent reactions. If I'm doing a 10-step synthesis and I really made that material and something messes up, I want to be able to fail over. And we're playing with failover at the moment. It's really cool. 
because um, people like work work. It's like it just works. <laughs> and because in Glasgow, the temperature goes up and down, and things change here and there. You can't control everything. I am a control freak, but I'm not totally um, perfect. So there's lots of little games playing. We're only just getting started. So cleaning is important. Failure tolerance is important, and also scheduling is important. Lee, I, I had a question. I really enjoyed your presentation, particularly for automating directed evolution, uh, not just in bacteria, which people use, and that's a very um, kind of messy environment. But my question was, the, the reaction language that you described reminds me a lot of the development of VLSI, where people eventually got to design rules, and that let less skilled people develop more and more complex um, circuits. So an example for the reaction sequences that you've been talking about in, your, in the automation, um, it, does the user need to know enough to avoid making um, some kind of highly reactive intermediate that will then quickly react with the, with the solution before the next step? Or is there some support tools to help yeah, us not users get around? Yeah, we have, I'm, I'm very, so first of all, that's a really good question. And I'm a believer in uh, giving the robot some, uh, not not ethics, but I mean, I, I was kind of inspired and depressed by, well, not actually inspired. I'll explain. There, years ago, there was a tragedy where a German wings pilot locked out, uh, locked out the co-pilot, locked out the pilot, and he programmed in the autopilot and crashed the plane into the Alps, right? Committed suicide, took the entire, it's a very sad now, had we been thinking ahead, go, oh, we don't want planes to fly into air or to fly into mountains, we'll just disallow that. It's not within, it's not outside of the wit of a software person to do that. We just didn't think about it, sadly. Inspired by that tragedy, I thought, well, are there ways we could put in design rules so we can stop people making another chock by an accident or basically making a bomb when they don't mean to and also just messing up reactions till they got the timings wrong? And the answer is yes. It's not that complex when you're doing certain design rules and so say for the rna synthesis it's really easy because you're doing the same thing again and again and again when you're doing other reactions because we have a controlled sequence of where you start and stop a reaction and the compatibility there is a compatibility flag so basically if the solvent that you're going to clean isn't compatible with the stuff you've just done then it just stops and i think there's a very good point going forward and we want to put a bit more in there and also have an expert mode but the RNA synthesizer we just made for a barista bot when it did 5,000 um, KDL, like that is the longest synthetic sequence ever done by a human being. But he did it with a robot, right, over two weeks. And rather than write, he was a bit, he was, well, I was say he's lazy. He wasn't lazy, he's a genius, right? He's like, I'm not going to write out these codes. I'm going to make this recursively enumerate and expand out from a blueprint. And that's what he did. And um, so I was really inspired by that. So I think at the high level, I, I, one of the things I did a lot during lockdown is I'm pretty obsessed with um, hardware. So I'm playing around with FPGAs to solve graph problems. So I like instantiating the graph on the FPGA and pruning off the logic. But I mean, you're in Verilog <laughs> and all these higher level languages, right? I'm, I'm using a, diff, a different language. Um, that was made by a little company called Alcatree, but they make these nice FPGAs and a little um, um, compiler-like way for writing the FPGAs. You can do a lot without having to know a lot at that level. So I think what is important is you then turn the expertise now. They don't become an expert in um, the actual logic design. They're all the way up. 
So I think we are should be inspired by um, you know the way microprocessors and computer designers work, right? What we are right now is with that interface between designing the transistors and the logic arrays. Then we go about when you mentioned logic arrays robust with respect to the next array up. Those are solid, then you can fully express yourself. And and there's some really weird stuff that you do in microprocessors, like really weird things that shouldn't work. And I think I listened to Jim Keller who did some stuff at AMD. There's some crazy stuff they do in binary decision trees that just works. But how they got that to work is scary when you think it's like there's this deterministic thing, but it's non-deterministic inside. But that's another aside. So yes, great point. And uh, it's something that we're trying to do. And it depends on how I commercialize this because I am starting a company that's going to try and chemify the world, if you know it. But the company problem is like like Tesla. I'm trying to do what Elon Musk has done at Tesla, and I'm not Elon Musk, <laughs> sadly, or maybe because I have a software problem, a hardware problem, and a culture problem, and a bunch of grumpy chemists. You know, that's that's a very interesting kind of culture to solve. But we'll get there. And that In terms of you were, you were describing as universality. I'm wondering, are you thinking also of expanding that concept? It sounded like you were talking about chemistry in solutions only. But no, universality no, is the it's in solids everywhere. It's universal everywhere. The only reason I'm using liquids is because I'm being pretty lazy um, in, in the engineering. But it's really important that we understand mathematically in terms of the same machine we're building that it should be universal. I have built a um, distillation system, a sublimator. One of my one of my postdocs today did a sublimation. That is, took a material, he basically sublimed it onto a cold finger. So we're that... So we've worked out all the operations we need to basically cover materials chemistry because what I'm going to do chemify, we are basically generate you can use inverse design and develop pattern families. So we're going to discover new OLEDs, new solid state materials, new magnetic materials, but we need to get that underlying infrastructure and pick off the engineering problem. So if someone says, okay, make me a superconductor, we can then evolve a superconductor. But that's that's a hard technical project, but if we have the language behind it, we know the unit operations, it's not that hard to make a superconductor, throw a load of stuff in the tube, evacuate and vacuum, heat it to a thousand degrees, and then pray. So, you know, there's things we can we can make that better. So, no, the universality will work. The only barrier we have is a little bit of engineering, and it's significant. Yeah, that's so another that reminds me of something, which I'm sure you've thought of because you've thought of this stuff for years um more like high energy reactions like like high pressure high temperature sintering you know like you just talked about with the superconductor stuff ceramic stuff um i mean this is obviously extensible to that sort of yeah we have we're making a ceramic robot right now basically everyone says it can't work you're being too easy and cheap so like okay we'll just make a ceramic robot it uses gravity it's basically like dumpster bot at the moment so we have a little vacuum chambers that just turns the stuff down. So we are making ceramics. I spent some time at the ceramics lab at NASA Ames, which does a lot of refractory ceramics. And there's really beautiful things there for like mixing powders. I'm sure you know all this technology. It's a lot of fun. Then another question, Lee, is um, seems to me in sort of the spirit of um, flow cytometry and the LSI, like, and, and like this stuff can be chipified can't it to some extent and then made massively scaled that massive you know smaller quantities but massive parallels yeah i mean there, there is once you know what you're making 
then you can look at the scaling. One of the nice things about the scale at which we do the chemistry right now, there seems to be a sweet spot for discovery. The problem with someone asked about CombiChem, another thing about CombiChem is you're going too low down um, in volume and you don't know what you've made, you're not going to work it out. CombiChem only knows it works when you're just confirming the, um, the AB because you know the molecular weight or something. So you should be able to scale it. Also made a microfluidically qualified computer because we're putting one into the lower four bit. It's pretty weird, though, that the, if I read you correctly, that the sort of optimal discovery scale is like the scale of a flask you could hold in your hand. Uh, well, there's another reason that's cultural, isn't it? Human beings build devices that human beings can interact with, right? That's number one. And also, if you're looking at an MR machine, you need a few mils of solvent. And there seems to be something really interesting on Earth, one atmosphere, 298, that basically if your surface area to volume ratio is too small, everything happens um, Everything happens at the boundary. If it's too much the other way, you've got too much solution and not enough um, interface. And, it, and, yeah, it's. I mean, I'm trying to convince my group to do a, a uh, project right now, which is basically called Creative Reaction Volumes, which is how creative is chemistry at the nanomole, or nanoliter, effectively, and go all the way up, and look at when the optimal discovery is, right? I'm really interested in molecular transformations, single molecules. You know, in the origin of life, there was just all the origin of information growing on a polymer, right? You want an isolated molecule and you then want polymer growth. And you want basically that polymer growth and that seed to happen in isolation, okay? And you want them to happen everywhere, but spaced apart. And one of the things I wanted to do is kind of program that and explore how much sequence space can I search when I have nothing in the way? It's a bit like, if I'm going into a football stadium and I'm all my own, I can go to any seat I want. But if I'm in a, if I'm in a, if there's loads of you, it's going to be difficult. So if I'm trying to work out how to generate peptide sequences, I need to be able to go super dilute and super concentrate and oscillate from like in my evolutionary system to search the state space. Because actually, this is why directed evolution is hard in some ways because biology kind of restricts you. You know, to work in a certain state space, you can't get out of that. So I don't know. I mean, and it's one of the fascinating things we'll have to do. There's so much science to do here. Um, you know, at the moment, I'm kind of confused by what, you know, on what to do next, um, other than panic about the pandemic and get funding and get back on an aeroplane or whatever it is I need to do next. Leah, what, what were the, well, because there's hundreds of cottage uh, special economic zones around the world. So what are the regulatory burdens that you're facing? Uh, so at the moment, um, because of the way that we are going to um, work in terms of um, providing technology to people, they most, most of those people, we will only um, provide technology in the company to those that are qualified to handle it. Um, so academics is easy. What will become harder is when the cloud stuff takes off. And I, I really, I talked to the FDA and I'm talking to the NIH right now because I'm doing some stuff for the NIH and starting to think about it. The real question is how do we prove people's credentials and then um, and how do we then work at what they're allowed to do and not allowed to do? And it all goes back to um, having a verifiable, um, auditable trail. And that's actually why blockchain works right people think blockchain is a way of finding stuff and just buying you know buying yourself an aircraft carrier by accident it's like i didn't mean to just 
But actually, if you actually use a blockchain, um, you can actually make sure your transactions are transparent to the entire world. And there's incentive for you making sure your tra- your transactions are transparent because the regulatory authorities can check you're not doing the wrong thing by accident. In some chemistry labs, you can end up making the wrong molecule by accident. It's like, I didn't mean to make it. And you're formally breaking the law because you just made a you know ground or something that's not allowed in that jurisdiction. Um, so, so I don't know exactly how we'll overcome that yet. I think we need use cases and we just need to talk to local authorities. But that's a long way away, you know. But although we're trying to cloud it, the amount of time, I mean, it's, it depends what happens in the next 18 months. If things go the way I want, then the companies will expand ridiculously. But it needs a vast amount of money and someone with very, you know, vision as big as mine, which I think we might have. But let's not, let's not count chickens. Couldn't you get rid of that problem by having a centralized laboratory space? So you do away with yeah. the traditional lab model, and instead, well, I, I log into a, a basically a lab cloud, like you call it a cloud. It's just a lab that exists somewhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that is one way of doing it. I mean, I thought about it in the future, right? The way you could get away that people say, "Oh, I want to have a three D printer in my kitchen and print drugs." Like, well, no. Why don't you just have a local manufacturing facility, a pharmacy, and pharmacists will do what they used to do in the good old days, which is actually prepare the the uh, the medicine right so if the if the pharmacy was regulated then it would just it would just you know only dispose of things that you had a prescription for um so i think you know i've talked to the fda a bit about this um in when we were 3d printing reactors uh using the 3d printed reactors to qualify reactions and so on um and that that caused quite a lot of um, interesting discussion because i thought fda would hate this no no we were definitely um, regulate this properly because you have more control. And, and the other thing is you want, when you're making some materials, you don't want the control system to go out of date. The problem with a lot of drugs that are being made, they're made on one manufacturing facility. That manufacturing facility is mothballed after some time and redone. You have all sorts of problems. So I, I think the idea of micro drug manufacturing in certified sites where you post it from a cloud and gets validated is, is a will happen, James. I think that's a good point. Have we have we reached the end? Is that it? I was going to say, <laughs> I'm gonna, there's I, any I, more I, discussion? I'm going to get confused with it at some point. But um, yeah. there's so many interesting questions. I'm really pleased that um, uh, yeah, it's gone really nice. So, I had one last question, which is how much does you've talked a little bit about how much these things cost to set up, um, depending on the application that you were going for. So, how much is your organic synthetic setup to produce? Um, we, it's not, so I can tell you how much Chemify is selling it for, um, um, roughly, but to actually make that set up, if you're going to do it yourself and buy all the bits and bolts, and then say you just magically have the software, probably 50 to 60,000 pounds maximum. Mm-hmm. And if you had your own rotary evaporator, your stirrers and so on, the cost goes down to about 20k. Because the main cost is the chiller, the rotary evaporator, and then, um, um, some other, um, uh, some of the some of the pumps, the pumps and valve heads, right? This is this. I'm talking to many companies who are making fine chemicals at the moment, as in fine chemical manufacturers. The the robot that GSK have, we we bought, we, we, we I lent them one to make diazerines, and I wrote the code. Diazerine costs a million dollars a mole. Reason why it costs a million dollars a mole is they're only made in batch sizes of say 20 grams and they decompose every three weeks, right? Because it's just UV sensitive. 
So basically, the computer that, that, that GSK outlent them for free <laughs> has, has basically generated, I think, a million pounds worth of products. So I missed the trick there, but I really needed them to kind of get. But what I'm saying is, you, what you could do is think about what compact, let's say you're an expert in whatever area, you tool up, during the day you do research, by night you generate material that you then sell through the university legitimately, let's not do anything under, and then what you do is you then use a, you work with the university, so I use my income for this to augment my day job, right? And then, then chem, the labs can then become kind of um, on-demand chemical manufacturing sites, which I think is a cool idea, but I mean, maybe that's, a little bit away, but I don't think it's that difficult. Well, they can also be, I think this is what you're alluding to, they can manufacture stuff that has short shelf life. It's yeah. On demand. yeah, 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 exactly. There's a lot of, there's a lot of radioactive. I've invented the alchemator. <laughs> so we're going to put a computer in a, in a nuclear reactor and just basically bombard it with neutrons because we can. Because <laughs> I would love to do alchemy. I'd like to be a, uh, but the other thing is you do radio chemistry in hospitals as well, right? One of the big things about labeling some of the um, pharmaceuticals that you've got, you want to be able to, you've got to be able to reliably and quickly to get to the patient. So there's things like that. And also nuclear decommissioning. There's applications there as well. So they're all on the cards. Just got to make sure the system doesn't keep breaking. Did this conversation pique your interest? Maybe it even inspired a bit of existential hope about the future in you. Search for Fawcett Institute on YouTube or Twitter to stay up to date or visit Fawcett.org to learn more, subscribe to our newsletter and join our efforts. We are entirely funded by your donations, so please support us if you like what we do. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>